suppose um, I want to begin uh, our sermon uh, confessing to you uh, a mistake that I made this past week. I want to confess as we begin, uh, confess a mistake from my pride. So earlier on, start of the week, maybe even a little bit before that, as soon as I opened the Bible and I saw the portion of Scripture that was lying in front of me for this coming Sunday. I have to confess to you, just getting a little bit enthused and a little bit uh, overexcited about these verses that we have here. Um, This section of Scripture is one that I suppose you could say is often overlooked, overlooked in Luke's Gospel. Um, If ministers are preaching through uh, Luke's Gospel, what they'll do with these verses is they will very often tap them onto another sermon. They'll deal with them. Uh, to do with what happened previously or what happens uh, afterwards. And I was determined that I was not going to do that. And there I was at the start of the week, and I was enthused, and I was excited. Why? Well, this is why. Because I felt that this text gave me a great opportunity to preach about women. Maybe, hopefully, you see what I mean by that. From this text, oh, it was going to be great. It was going to It was going to be great. I was, I was going to preach, and it was going to be about how biblical Christianity values women and records women, sees women, how Scripture portrays women, and lots of different various aspects of ministry. It was going to be brilliant. I was so enthused and so excited. And then the next day, I kind of recognized my mistake. And I wonder if you see what the hermeneutical mistake is that I was making. This is not a text that is primarily about women, is it? This is a text, that's all of Scripture. This is a text primarily primarily about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The hero of these verses is not Joanna, is it? It's not Susanna. It's not Mary Magdalene. The hero is, is Jesus of Nazareth. And so, I urge you not to make the same mistake that I was making. As we right now turn and open Scripture, let's remember our aim humbly this morning. The aim is not just for us to to gather in a few historical details about these women, is it? Nor is the aim this morning just for us to glean some things that are going to help us in our lives. What is the aim of the church? Surely just now the aim is to, from Scripture by the work of the Holy Spirit, to see Jesus here, that we might uh, worship him. So there's my mistake. Um, And I'm going to ask you to take in a deep breath, everyone, from the youngest to the oldest. Take in a deep breath. Are you ready for this? Uh, I'll lay it before you, okay? This is is for your prayers. The plan just now is for us to, to notice together six points about Jesus. Three verses, six points here. Points about our Lord, but six points here about, in particular, Jesus' ministry. Six points we learn here for our worship and praise about Jesus' earthly ministry. And so you're looking at me and thinking, he better get a move on. (laughs) I agree. Okay? First of the six. Let's notice together that Jesus' ministry was relentless. There's the first thing. It was relentless. Okay, let's, let's do this if we can. Let's put up the text on the, the screen. You might need glasses. Is it okay? I think it's all right to see it there. And let's look at verse 1 together, if you've got Scripture open in front of you or on the screen. But with me, in particular, look at the first half 
of verse 1. Can we look at that together? Can I, I'll read it. So what do we have? What does it say in front of you there? Soon afterward, soon after what? Soon after that encounter, of course, with that sinful woman. Soon after that. Now, what do we say? Jesus went on through cities and villages. Can I ask you, St. Peter's, just to stop there? What is it? Jesus went on through cities and villages. So, so just consider for a moment what that phrase there tells you about your Lord. Tells you more than that about the dynamic of Jesus' earthly ministry. Do you not get the impression with me that there was unceasing labor? There was energy, there was effort expelled, relentless labor of our Lord through a city, then into another city, onto a village, a town, onto a village, one after the other after the other. Maybe indeed you can remember way back to Luke chapter 4. Can you remember that? So Jesus was in solitude, and the crowd find him. And they come to Jesus, and they beg Jesus, please stay with us. Please don't move on. Now, do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said this. No, I, I, I can't stay. Jesus says, I must go and preach the good news to all the other towns as well for this purpose. For I was sent for, for this purpose. And what we see here right now through the cities, we're, we're seeing, as somebody else puts it, Jesus unwearied diligence in doing just that. Unwearied diligence. I'll let you into a little secret. There's a few ministers in the room. Us ministers don't particularly like emphasizing, reinforcing the idea of effort and energy expelled in the Christian life. That's perhaps not our favorite topic. Can you see why? I think you can, can't you? We don't want people who are unbelieving to get the wrong impression as though by our labors that somehow we're thinking we're contributing to salvation. Nor do we want Christians falling back into that works righteousness mindset where we think, oh, we've got to be busy around the church. We've got to be doing all lots so that we can contribute and earn and receive God's favor. But do you not agree that there perhaps from our pulpits needs to be some balance? Do we not now and again need to hear that in Christian things there, there must be some sense of service, that there must or there ought not to be laziness in, in Christian things? And Christian friend, I would love for you to contemplate that this morning and hear that in light of what I'm just about to say. I want you to consider this, that your time for these things is short. Our window for opportunity is so limited. Now, contemplate this. There will be no sick people for you to visit in the new heavens and the new earth. You have an opportunity now as a Christian. The window is, is, is it's closing. There will be no needy Christians in heaven to make meals for. There will be no unbelieving friends and family for you to witness to. There will be no antagonistic colleagues for you to reach out to in love. Time for you and for me is short. The, the, the window there is a limited opportunity. Do we not need to look at this, read this of our Lord and follow after our Lord's example? What do you see here? You see God honoring diligence. 
in ministry. So it's relentless. Number two, Jesus' ministry was also very focused. So it's relentless, but it was also focused at the same time. Now, uh, one feature of Christianity over the past 100, let's go even longer, 150 years, one feature of Christianity has been the rise in the Western world of what we would call liberalism. Isn't that right? If you know your history and you know your church history at all, you can look back over the last 150 years and you see suddenly the Western world, this explosion of very liberal readings of Scripture, liberal ideas. Now, you're probably with me when I say that that has had a devastating effect on our country of Scotland. And uh, perhaps we see that most clearly in this, the variety of ideas that exist even today amongst so-called professing Christians, the variety in ideas about why God sent his son. Do, do you follow? So if, if you and I, if we go to churches up and down the land today, like a liberal congregation, and, and we speak to maybe the clergy, the leaders of that church, and we ask them, tell us, why did Jesus come? Why did God send his son? Now, what are some of the answers that we're going to hear in our own country with the, the heritage that we have? We're going to hear things like Jesus came to, to show that God loves everybody the same. And we're, go, we're going to hear a, a, as well that Jesus came to set for everyone an example of how we can live to, to earn God's, God's favor. Now, I would ask you on the back of that, what is on the screen? Or what is, what is in your hands here? You're, you're with me when I say that what we've got here is a summary section, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a summary. So what does that force the author Luke to do? What he has to do here is get right down, doesn't he? He has to focus in and summarize the essential nature of Jesus' ministry prior to the, to the cross. So what is it? Look, look at it with, with me. What does he say here in verse 1? So Jesus, what, what's the summary here? Jesus is going city to city, village to village, town to town, but what is he doing? Do, do you see? He is proclaiming, so it's a preaching ministry. Now, stick with me. What exactly is he preaching? He is bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. Focus in on that. Now, uh, years ago, before I was in ministry, before I went to seminary, um, I worked in Kirkcaldy, uh, in quite a deprived part of Kirkcaldy in Fife, um, and I worked as a community worker, sort of facilitating drug addiction counselling, uh, that sort of thing. And when I was in Kirkcaldy, I would have a regular meeting with the council, and in this meeting was a, a, a lady who consistently made a mistake with a word that she was using. <laughs> so uh, I didn't pick it up straight away. But we're in this big hall, it's a council meeting, we're all sitting around the, the tables, and she was bemoaning the residents of this area of Kirkcaldy, and she said, these people, they are, they are desperately secular, desperately secular. And I sat there thinking, that is an unusual observation for the, <laughs> to be made in a council meeting in Kirkcaldy, but I'll, I'll roll with it. Uh, and it wasn't until maybe the third week and the eighth time that she used it that I remember thinking, she means insular. <laughs> she doesn't mean secular. She means insular. She's bemoaning insular. 
idea. And it's an example, and we're all guilty of it, me more than most, of using a word often and maybe not being exactly familiar with what it means. So this morning, as we look at Scripture, is that the case for, for you and for me? What's Jesus preaching about? Our Lord is preaching about the kingdom of God. And that's the word that we use a lot in St. Peter's, isn't it? That phrase. And we pray about it. Will will pray about it. I'll pray about it. You will. We'll preach about it. What are we actually dealing with, though? The kingdom of God. Well, stick with me. Yes, we have to appreciate that when we're talking about the kingdom of God, what we're dealing with is the reign of of the Lord Jesus Christ, or it is the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a familiar mistake we've got to avoid. It is not a place. (laughs) The kingdom of God is not a location. What we're talking about is the reign, the rule of Jesus, and it's something that is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. So you hear those two things? They're not referring to, to different things at all. It's kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But I want this morning to give you a phrase upon which you can hang your hat. You can tell that we're maybe not the most traditional of free churches. There's not a lot of hats in the, in the room, but if there were, the phrase to hang your hat, please hear it. When we think of the kingdom of God, listen, remember this phrase, the already, but not yet. There's the phrase, the already, but not yet. What does that mean? Well, here in Galilee, as Jesus is preaching, what he's doing is declaring two things, two realities. Number one, Jesus is declaring the coming of a new age of God's rule. Do you follow? As Jesus preaches in these cities and these villages, he's declaring that with his ministry, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. As Jesus preaches, he's saying the kingdom of God is now it's, it's come, it is already. What's the other thing that Jesus is declaring? He is also declaring that there is a further dimension to come. So Jesus, to his listeners at this point, he's declaring that there is a time when his reign will be fully established. It will be fully consummated. Jesus declaring the kingdom of God is already, it is here with his ministry, but it is not yet. Now, I explore that, expand that from Scripture. Do you want me to? Perhaps you'll remember how the Lord Jesus Christ, how he answered the Pharisees in Luke chapter 17. Maybe that comes to mind for you, does it? The Pharisees come to Jesus and say to Jesus, Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? What does Jesus respond? He looks at these opponents and he says, but the kingdom of God is already in your midst. It is now, it has been inaugurated with my coming. So it is already. But then you consider, and there are a plethora of places we could go. But what about Matthew seven twenty one? But Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will future enter the kingdom of God. What does he say in the, the last supper? I will not drink with you until I drink with you future in in, in the kingdom of God. Do we see it is already the kingdom of God? It is inaugurated, but it is not yet. It is to be fully consummated one day. 
Now, I know some of you, the sun's streaming in, it's warm, it's in Peter's, and you're thinking, oh, it's a bit technical uh, this morning. Maybe you're wondering, maybe you're asking, oh, what does that have to do with me? But I would turn you back to verse 1. And what does Jesus call this message? Do you see? Look what he calls it. He says, this is good news. And is it not the case that, that every born-again person in this room knows that that is truth? That this is good news. That if we've repented and believed, if we are recipients of God's grace, we have the most wonderful eschatological future ahead of us. Because that kingdom one day soon is going to be fully established. It is going to be fully consummated. And what will happen to you, Christian friend, on that day? You will see Christ and you will, we are promised in Scripture, you will reign with him with your Savior, with Christ, with your King in that day. So we see it is relentless. We see that it is also focused. Thirdly, <coughs> much more briefly, we see that Jesus' ministry was also shocking. It was shocking, uh, Jesus' ministry. So up until now, you and I have been looking at this text, and we have been focusing all of our attention on Jesus and what exactly it is that Jesus has been doing in these towns and these villages and these cities. And I think if we were just skipping over this in a reading, what we could accidentally conclude is that at this point Jesus is by himself. That Jesus is going through Galilee in this section of his ministry and he's all alone and he's working by himself. And you can see surely from the text that would not be a correct conclusion. Because what does it say? Who are his companions? Do you notice there are two sides to it? So we're told that Jesus is with the 12. So those, those men, those leaders of the church that he has prayed about and chosen. So he's with the 12. Great, fine. Let's maybe not linger there. Because there is another phrase, isn't there? Right at the start of verse 2. What do we read? Who else is Jesus with? And also some women. Now, as maybe I hinted at at the start of the sermon, I, I want to, but I can't linger here, uh, largely because there's just too much for us to cover. But I do long for you to appreciate this, if nothing else this morning. I want you to appreciate how unusual this was. I want you even more to appreciate how utterly shocking <laughs> this reality was at the time. Now, in the first century world, generally speaking... The, a rabbi had an incredibly dismissive attitude to women. Uh, do we appreciate that? I'm not sure that we appreciate, you know, the extent of that. There was, if you look at it, there seems to have been this widespread aversion to teaching the Torah to, to females. You want the reasoning behind it? The reasoning was that most of the rabbis, if you look at history, they thought that women were quite simply not capable of significant learning. There's your background and your context. And so you can, you can see that this would have been unheard of for a rabbi to travel and to travel in the company that he's doing. And I've said that I can't linger, but I do want to ask you, what do you make of that? Make it more specific. Ladies in here, <laughs> girls in here, women here, what do you learn? If nothing else, you learn that Jesus is different to that. 
Here is a saviour who wants men and women around him to know him, to hear from him, to receive his mercy and, and, and grace. You, if you're a Christian lady in here, you, you learn that Jesus sees you right now and he values you, he cares for you, regardless of what others are like, regardless of societal views. And so what, what do you do in response to that? Is it not this? Do you not seek to leave the trappings and the pitfalls of this world behind? And do you not seek to follow him with all you are? Four, Jesus' ministry was transformative. It was transformative. I think we should pause for a moment. I want you to think about where we have got to and what we are seeing with our mind's eye just now. We've just, as we picture this text, we realize it's not just one, but it's actually a large group of people that are traveling from town to town and villages. But I think this, I think as soon as we realize that there was quite a large group of women traveling here in the first century world, there is something in us, isn't there, that we want to know a little bit more and we want to know a little bit more about who exactly these women were. So would you look at that with me? Look at verses 2 and 3. You'll have noticed that there are three women who are highlighted. Um, let's just work backwards. Who are the three women? So we've got, first we've got Susanna. Do you know, Susanna, we know nothing about Susanna. Susanna is not mentioned anywhere outside this, this, this moment. Perhaps she was known uh, to the first readers of Luke's gospel. We don't know that speculation, but there's Susanna. Who else do we have? Do you notice? We've got Joanna. I promise you this. We'll come back to Joanna in a moment. But that takes us to the most famous of the three. Who do we have? We have got Mary Magdalene. Now, I think last time I said that I, I don't really understand it, but Mary Magdalene gets an incredibly, incredibly hard time. Most people assume, for whatever reason, that Mary Magdalene was, was a lady of the night, was a prostitute, despite there being nothing in Scripture to, to support that in any way. And in fact, Christian friend, what is it that you're told about Mary Magdalene here? What's the detail? Do you see in verse 2? Oh, please think about it. This is a woman who has had seven demons removed from her. Seven. So this is the scriptural number. You know this is scriptural number of totality, of completeness. When you think about Mary Magdalene, what do you know now? You know this is a woman who's had one dark past. Seven demons removed, a, a trouble past. Now, I want to ask you this. I'll, I'll turn this to you. Why do you think Luke draws our attention and specifies Mary Magdalene here? Why does he mention her? There's lots of other women. Why? Maybe we think it's because of the role she'll have later on in the gospel. I think that's maybe part of it, but I think more is this. Because Mary Magdalene exemplifies the experience of all of the women in that group. Because did you notice what we're told there in verse 2? What about all of these women? There's a large group of them. We read this. These were women who had, each of them, they had been healed of evil spirits. They had been healed of infirmities, of diseases. Can you picture them? Like all of these women, each of them have known something of the healing touch of Jesus. That's the common denominator. 
like the transformative power of Jesus. Like some of them, I think, speculation, but they might have been taken on, on, on stretchers to Jesus in Capernaum near death and Jesus has healed them. But think about the demonic element. Like some of these women have been living in caves They've been forced out because of demonic activity into outside of the community, outside of the town. But every single one of these women has encountered Jesus and been a recipient of his grace. Now, I, I, yeah, I think if we bring it into St. Peter's, I think there's a lovely reality here because is it not the case that in a sense for the Christian women in the room, you get to see yourself in, in this picture? Is that not the case for you? You know, you think about St. Peter's, a, a group of women here who are determined to seek to follow Jesus. Why? Because you have known his transforming power, his healing. I mean, it holds up a, 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 a mirror to you if you're a Christian woman here. But then I've got this at the back of my mind. What if you are a woman in here and you are yet to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe in him? What if that sums up where you are? Well, what I would love for you to appreciate and know is that the healing that we have here and what Jesus Christ offers you this morning is something that is full and lasting and enduring. And I, th I think you know what it's like. I don't know if you listen to podcasts yourself or you flick through podcasts, but you'll know this, that we are in the modern world, we are bombarded with ideas and philosophies that promise change. Is that fair enough? I think that's true, isn't it? From podcasts and books about diet and books and podcasts and self-help type stuff. We are bombarded with, with, with these things. You change your diet, you're going to be an entirely new person and, and all of these great promises. Now, there may be a place for, for some of that. Maybe there is. But what is it, friend? What is it that's true of all of those promises? Surely what's true is that those things are temporary, they are just passing, they are fleeting. Well, I want you to understand, if you're not a Christian, not what Christ is offering you this morning. What these women in this account, what they have come to know is a healing and transformation that endures. How can I say that? Well, you think about what happens. Months later on, what happens? There's, there's witnesses at the crucifixion. Who are those witnesses? There are witnesses of the empty tomb. Who are those witnesses who have endured, who have gone through opposition, who have stuck with the Lord Jesus Christ? And what would you say to me? You would say, would you, Andy, was women? I would come back to you and say, well, no, we can be more precise. Because as Luke's gospel records these things, do you know what he says? Luke says it was the very same women who had been with him in Galilee transformed, sticking with him. Luke even goes on to mention some by name. Who was there at the cross looking on? Who got to that tomb and, and saw it from a cave, from being expelled because of demonic possession, living in caves, to, to standing at the front of this tomb? Who was it but Joanna, Luke tells us, and Mary Magdalene? Do you see what Christ offers isn't fleeting, it isn't passing, it's something that lasts, and it lasts regardless of your dark past. We're nearly there. Fifth point. 
Jesus' ministry is also far-reaching, far-reaching. Let me uh, just make good on my uh, promise, on my, my words. I promised a moment ago uh, that we would return to Joanna and just uh, note her. So let's do that together. I wonder if you'd note uh, what is said of Joanna in verse 3. We read this. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, I have to say, I've been in ministry for a while and I've never yet baptized a Chusa. Let's try and, let's try and change that, St. Peter's. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Now, if you're going to appreciate anything about Joanna, I just want you to bring two things to, to your mind just now. One, call to mind what you know about that guy, Herod. Herod. What do we know? I think it's easy for us. Herod was Herod Antipas. Herod was the tetrarch, the ruler the time. And he, he was a man, wasn't he, portrayed in scriptures. Being, I think, weak is fair, but immoral. Wasn't he? wicked. He was, an, an, in a sense, an, an awful man. And, and if, if your Bible's open, you just need to look at the previous chapter to remember what we're supposed to have in our mind. Herod is one so powerful that he has just recently, he's thrown Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, into prison in that desert fortress that we talked about. Who's Herod? Herod is a, Herod is a man who is a tyrant, but a powerful ruler. That's the first thing. Second thing that you need to call to mind is this role that this man Chusa has. What does it say? It says that he would, he's Herod's household manager. If you dig into that, uh, be assured that what you're thinking about there is the idea of the man who is in charge of Herod's wealth. This is a man with an incredibly influential role. So Chusa is in charge of his whole fortune, Herod's personal estate. And wait a minute. What are you reading there? Joanna's married to a guy like that. Like, do you see when you begin to think about Joanna? Joanna is right up there in terms of Galilean society, isn't she? You think about Joanna. Don't think about a peasant girl. Think about Joanna as one who mixes with the movers and shakers in society. Now, I think legitimately you might have some questions about this. I do. Like, it's questions we perhaps can't answer. Questions like, how does she follow Jesus? How does that go down in Herod's court? And we can't answer that, but we can assert this. From Joanna, we learn that the gospel of God had impacted the upper echelons of society. Don't you see that? Like the elite and the rulers, the movers and shakers, and the politicians and governors and their families, they were not impervious to the, the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. And I think right across St. Peter's, that should give us hope this morning for Scotland. And that should give us fuel for our, for, our, for our times of prayer. Last Sunday, Chris preached. Were you here? And he preached on Psalm 80, this idea of pleading to God to, to look favorably upon a nation. How have we responded? How will we as a church respond? Can we not even this week cry out to God to do this again? to cry out to God and have him, have the elite and the politician, the, the rulers hear and respond 
to the gospel. Let's cry out for more Joannas. And because of your patience, we've made it. Jesus' ministry is and was relentless and focused. It was shocking. It was transformative. It was far-reaching. Sixth, last, Jesus' ministry was also supported, supported. A while ago, context different to this, I was speaking with some uh, young people, some older kids, and we were speaking about the Christian life. So I kind of opened up the discussion like this. I just asked them, you know, when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, what should that mean for the rest of their life? Like what things should characterize that they live and the way they live from that point on? And I want to tell you, like in that situation, like those kids gave me some great answers, answers that, that rebuked uh, their minister. So they said there should be from the Christian regular worship and great prayerfulness, witness, a fight for holiness. Isn't it good? I mean, just from young people. Well, in how these women act here, we are given a model response to Jesus. And it's something that the kids didn't mention. So see if you can get it. If you look at the very last phrase with me here, what do you see? So Mary Magdalene, Joanna, all these other women, what do they do? Christ has healed them, and we find they provided for them. That's got to be the, the, the group, doesn't it? Jesus and the disciples. And provided for them out of their means. I think everybody in the room can see what's going on here. In response to grace, in response to mercy, these women not only took care of the practical needs, what else did they do? They provided financially, didn't they? For, for, the, for the disciples and for Jesus. I mean, it says here, out of their means. Now, you've been very patient with me in a sermon like this this morning. But I want to give you three things for you to think about as you, as you leave and to think about this afternoon. And we close with these. Number one, consider, please, please consider Christ. Because as you think about what you're told there, aren't you blown away by how kind Jesus is? Who's Jesus? Think about the feeding of the 5,000. Who's Jesus? I mean, Jesus is the one who could take a little bit of bread, a few fish, and he could feed a multitude, can't he? I mean, the, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. What's the obvious statement to make? Jesus does not need their provision of these women. He doesn't need their support. And, but do you not see his kindness in this and his humility? He condescends to allow these women to care for him. He condescends to allow them to express their love. Isn't that humble? Isn't that beautiful? The kindness of Christ is one. Two, oh please, consider yourself. Because surely another reason that Jesus allows these women to do this is to set you and to set me an example this morning as Christians to follow. I'll ask the difficult question, what about you? So you look at these women, and I'm not just talking to the ladies of St. Peter's, to all of us who are Christians. How are we using our resources? How do we use our finances? If this is a model response to Jesus, we have to ask, is there a similar desire in our hearts to follow him 
Is there a similar desire to cheerfully and sacrificially give for the, for the gospel to go out in our country? And then the very last, the third of the three, please consider the gospel. Because there is a, a mistake that we could make this morning, and I'm especially keen that if you're not yet trusting in Christ, you do not make this mistake. Do not make this mistake. We could read this. What could we conclude? <laughs> we could conclude that these women are trying to pay back things to God. They're trying to pay off their debt. There's the mistake. We could look at this and think, oh, Jesus has provided healing for them. In a sense, clearly, Jesus has saved them. So these women want to do their side of the bargain. They want to pay back that, that debt to God. So they provide financially. Friends, please understand that is not what's going on here. These women clearly understand that this healing they have received is freely bestowed by Jesus. The salvation that they enjoy in that moment it is all by grace. They understand as they look to Jesus that here, traveling through Galilee, is the one who himself is going to pay all the debt that they owe to God. He will pay it all himself on that cross. And so what is their response to him? Their response is gratitude, isn't it? Their response is love. Maybe this morning and here, as you look at this portion of Scripture and maybe perhaps reflect on it this afternoon, that you look at this and see not just these women. Look at it and see not just stuff for your own life, but please look at this and see something of the loveliness of Jesus and see something of the extent of the salvation that he alone can bring. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.